Welcome to this conversation. I'm your host, Teresa Keller, and my guest today is Tasha Devon. And Ms. Devon is running for Congress in the 9th District of Virginia for the election Tuesday, November the 8th, commonly referred to as the midterms. She will be competing against Congressman Morgan Griffith, incumbent for the last 11 years. Welcome to this conversation, Tasha Devon. Thank you for having me, Teresa. Well, it's a great pleasure. And so let's just start with the big question. Why are you running? I'm running because I feel like we deserve representation from Southwest Virginia that lives in Southwest Virginia, that works in Southwest Virginia and knows the struggles and knows the beauty of what we have and how to work with the people that we have. Well, now implicit in that is the idea that maybe we're not being represented. Is that what you're saying, why would you be a better representative than the incumbent that we have in office now? I would say that the incumbent represents a smaller section of Southwest Virginia. He tends to either vote no for things that are really good for our community or not vote at all. And I would be somebody who represents everybody of all, you know, of all income levels, of all backgrounds, of all faiths, and I feel that the incumbent does not do that. Congressman Griffith would surely say that he votes yes for the community where you say he votes no. So let's look at some of the specifics. What would be an example of something that you think he has voted against that would have benefited the community? Well, he has voted against uh, the formula bill uh, when, it, when we were having the shortage at the beginning of the year. There was a domestic Violence Act against women that he had voted no on. The Infrastructure Act, which we are now actually having a lot of projects that are going on in our region because of that bill that came through and he voted no on that. How can you vote against the Formula Act to get formula in the hands of mothers so they can feed their babies? I mean, I'm sure he would explain it somehow. What would he say? He would say that it was since it was a corporation that had already been mis mismanaged that they did not want to pour more money into the corporation until they had come into regulation. Um, however, I think that in that situation where we were dealing with starving children, that we didn't have time to waste. And those type of regulations and, and checks and balances on big corporations should have happened before we get to a shortage. What about the domestic violence bill? What did that ask for that he voted against? It was to make sure that the people who have records or who have shown a tendency of violence are not able to purchase weapons and are not, are not able to, and had longer sent and had longer time where they were not able to be around uh, the person that they were um, displaying the physical violence against. And then finally, the infrastructure bill, what are the projects that are already underway? We have a lot of of infrastructure, transportation, roads that are being built. We have an expressway that is being built. We have just, in general, I see more movement in all of the counties, um, especially like the back roads that are being paved in the ninth district from here all the way up to Roanoke. There are bridges that are now being built that I had that are that are moving quicker and faster. And all of that has, most of those projects have come from the- Tasha Devon running for Congress in the 9th District of Virginia. Let's get a little bit of information about who you are. You, you've clearly looked at the issues. You think you could make a change and make a positive difference. Tell us a little bit about your background, your heritage, 
the part of your life that formed you to make you take on a challenge like this? So I was, I was born and raised in Oklahoma, Southwest Oklahoma, and I am an enrolled member of the Comanche Nation. And I can tell you that that shaped a lot of who I am. It taught me a lot about involvement with your community and what a strong nation could look like and how that is dependent and can be measured upon the way that you protect your most vulnerable and your most precious. So your elders and your children. And I learned a lot about generational thinking and what we do today and how we act today is going to not just impact us, but it's going to be for the, even the sixth generation, not just the next, but the seventh and the eighth. And my parents had always participated in the, our local and tribal government. So I, I learned a lot about what it was like to be engaged on community matters. And when I graduated from college in 2018 from UVA Wise, we moved up here in 2011 and I've been here since, in Wise County since then. And when I graduated from college and I knew that I wanted to stay here and I wanted to be in Southwest Virginia, I knew that I wanted to use my communication skills to stand up and speak out and, and, and be involved in my community. So that's what I've done since. And I've worked in the nonprofit field for, for, for many years now. And it's been around movement work for social justice, economic justice, and environmental justice. Because again, I believe that when we can protect those that are most precious and most vulnerable, um, then we are able to build a better generation and a better future. Uh, I want to follow up on, you said you are an enrolled member of the Comanche Nation, I think is the way you said that. What does that mean? You are Native American? You, what do you do to be enrolled? Yeah, so when you are part of a sovereign nation, and we also have treaties with the government, you have to be enrolled. So we have like our own constitutions, we have our own government. So it's basically an assigned number that says that you have proven your lineage and your heritage and we know that your family is Comanche so here is your number. You said that you had learned I guess I would say in environmental care and those kinds of things you learned long-term thinking there. I'm going to ask you a question that may be totally insensitive and politically incorrect. Did you grow up on a reservation? Um, not in the sense that most people would think about a reservation. Most of all of Oklahoma was Indian territory at one point in time. And we do have reservation lands, but it's not the same as in when you go more far west, there's no other people who live on those reservations other than the tribe. Where in Oklahoma, we had the land run and we had we are integrated now. So we do have particular jurisdiction, but we are also still living with, with everybody else. Is the term reservation a bad term? No, it's not a bad term. What, what, what the negative connotation usually comes from that is the life that is lived on a reservation, especially even more out west like New Mexico, because a lot of times they don't have infrastructure. They don't have a whole lot of health care, uh, running water, things like that. So it's really associated with the type of, of life that you have, the quality of life that you can have on a reservation. It can be barren. In your community where you grew up, you learned long-term thinking. So we're best friends now, right, Tasha? What are you thinking? You want to be in Congress where it's like, give it to us now to hell with the consequences. Well, I would say that that is part of, I think what we keep getting into these arguments about how best to steward our nation is because we are not thinking, you know, six, seven generations ahead. We're thinking about what is the biggest profit for the biggest bang for this year. And we have seen how those impacts 
hurt and make people suffer. And that's what we're, you know, our representatives are elected to do to make sure that they are, you know, doing what's best for the public at large, while also stewarding um, our people to not have to live in suffering. But Tasha Devon, the problem is in ourselves. People, the citizens, the voters also want things in the short term. It's not just Congress. They reflect the country. How do you get somebody in the coal industry to look at the long-term environment rather than the upcoming paycheck that may come from the coal operation? That's a really good question. And my conversations that I have with people as an environmentalist is there is a just transition model that we have been building, and it's a change of a worldview. So we can get the same paycheck by turning to different diverse economy and energy. So we don't have to change out of an energy economy in this region, but we do need to change the diversity of the different jobs. So clean energy, solar, wind, water, we can be developing those and paying those people the same amount as the coal companies. And if the companies want to continue in the energy field, that is that long-term generational thinking. And those things can happen now and they are happening now. You're in the position where you have a chance to be talking to citizens and talking about their interests. What would you say to a group of coal miners who say to you, we need these jobs. You need, if you're going to run for office, you need to be telling me you're going to defend my job and my industry. What are you going to say? I mean, you can make those points about long-term, but they're going to say, we got to feed our families now. I would say that it is, it's not necessarily up to the miners, right, to make those decisions, right? It's, our, it's for the companies, it is for the communities, and it's for our representatives to come together and say, you're not going to lose a job because we are building these other transition jobs. We are retraining you to know how to deal with solar. We are retraining you. And a lot of times um, what the, the skills that miners have are applicable to other energy jobs. Um, so it wouldn't be a loss of jobs because we are still going to need, we're still gonna need some, some about amount of coal, right? To, to do steel, to build bridges, to do those things. So there is a way that we can still mine coal, but do it safely and do it responsibly. And then also make sure that we are not depleting the workforce. Your opponent would say, oh, yes, I care about the environment, but it's still in coal. We need to find a way to make burning coal cleaner. Technology needs to solve this problem. I say that we shouldn't focus on a mono economy. We don't need to just have one thing that everybody is relying on because we don't know what's going to happen, right, in 100 years or 50 years, especially with climate change. We can do all of those things. Yes, we need technology. We need to burn this cleaner. We need to find innovative ways to do this same job. But we also need to be building the diversity of the economy at the same time. We can't just focus in silo. You said that you would say to people who might be taking a different viewpoint, there are jobs for you in the new economy, in, in energy, but in a different way. Are those jobs available now in what we call the coal fields? There are some, there are pilot projects that uh, have been coming down. There are new solar jobs that I have seen come up. Um, there are different reclamation jobs that are coming up. So turning mountaintop removal into, um, into, into, different, in, into different industries. Um, so those jobs are definitely happen happening, um, but we could have them at a bigger scale, a grander scale, and we can be you know, moving 
this quicker. Tasha Devon, how has the 9th District geography changed since the redistricting? And is it the same district as it was in the elections two years ago? It's not the same as it was two years ago. Um, and what they had done is there are part of there are part of the fifth district and parts of the sixth district that kind of more up towards Roanoke County shifted. So we now have Roanoke County, but we do not have Roanoke City. And we touch now the, the border of North Carolina and West Virginia. So it's really more up north towards this district that got that got changed and not where we are in South far south. And that district is stretched over a huge geographic area. Yeah, it's over 9,000 square miles. It's bigger than the state of New Jersey. And it has many different types of geography as you as you travel from one end to the other. And so that redistricting from what you just told me, uh, Congressman Griffin is a Republican. The district had just kind of carved itself around the metropolitan areas. The 9th district went up to Roanoke, but didn't go into Roanoke. And that's what has been the case in a lot of situations is that metropolitan areas vote more Democratic. We didn't say you're running as a Democrat, but metropolitan areas are more Democratic. But the district just skirts around the metropolitan areas. So in a way, the cards are still stacked way against you. That's right. That, that, that is right. And that makes this um, a tougher race and it makes it more of an uphill battle. And that is, you, you hit the, you know, you hit on the head. That is exactly what. Tasha, let's just uh, talk in the vernacular here. Do you have a snowball's chance and you know where of winning this race? <laughs> you know, I would say that you never know. I mean, it's up to the voters. And we have been told that politics is about money and we have been told that politics has, is about numbers. But you know what? Voting is an emotional decision. And I think if you really get out to meet with people, get in the community, that's how movements happen. And you never know. And I think that that's why I, I, I wanted to run this race because I didn't look at this as, as money and numbers. I looked at this as how can I connect with people? And I think I'm good at that because I genuinely care and I genuinely, genuinely want to see people succeed. So I think there's a, I think there's a good chance. You, you, you use the word yourself, money and numbers. How do you travel that 9,000 mile area and 9,000 square miles, 9,000 square miles. And you have to travel that and meet with people in all those locations. If you're going to connect, where does the money come from for a newcomer like you? You know, this campaign is what I would call grassroots. Um, it kind of comes from that background where I come from community organizing. So I have a lot of individual donors who are giving $15, $20 every couple of weeks. Is there anything else you'd like to add about your campaign, about your fundraising, how people can find out more about you? Yeah, so my website is www.devonforcongress. I am also on social media. And I would just add that a lot of people really enjoy watching my social media. They get to go on this journey with me. And that's how we have been really connecting with the with my with my base and with my voters and they will donate especially if they know you know that I'm out that day or I'm out in the community people are invested and want to make sure that you know that I've got that tank of gas so i would just say that for my campaign it is for everyone and i want to hear from everyone and i 
want to represent everyone in the best way that we can, in the best way that I can. Tasha Devon is my guest. She's running for Congress in the 9th District of Virginia in the election that's coming up on November the 8th. Well, and you have a lot of time between now and November. And I have volunteers and I have people who are ready to also um, get out with me so that we can talk to the community. I noticed on your website, you've kind of categorized uh, your campaign into your issues into three different areas. You talk about family, faith, and future. Tell us more about your family. I know you have a son and it looks like from the picture I saw that maybe he's a teenager. Tell us about your family. Yeah, I am a single mother and I do have one son. He is 13 years old and my mother is here with me. My father is up here and I have a sister and I have a niece and a nephew and we are very much a unit. And uh, even though we all live here in Wise County, I am very close with my sister. I'm very close with my mother and I'm very close with my niece and nephew. And a lot of times people think they're my kids, uh, but they're not because we are together so often. What about your faith? I notice on the website, you're, when you, in the category of faith, I see something that looks like a Native American ceremony in that picture. Yeah, so we have spirituality. Um, it, we definitely have churches that we had gone to. So I grew up with this dual sense of nature and the environment and it's really in my relation to the creator and I also grew up learning about Jesus and I grew up learning about how those things connect and it's my personal faith that has given me the bravery and the strength. What are your thoughts about separation of church and state? That's been one of the bedrocks of our society it seems like. I definitely agree that there should be a separation because my faith and how I see it in our faith is a personal choice. And those are things that we hold as principles and that we carry with us. But when we talk about our government, we have the faith in the constitution and those are our principles and that is what guides us. So I, it's our part. So I feel like they should definitely stay separated, but your faith can always influence the way that you go about governing. How do you know when you're crossing the line and getting your religion too close to your politics? When you are using your faith to make the decisions that are not in the Constitution, that is when we are overstepping a line. There are, there are places that we go to to worship. There are places that we go to to have faith. And that is not what we should bring to the governing side of that. How, and I think what we, what we get into when, when we're talking about, you know, Christian theology and we talk about uh, uh, the abortion issue, we are not here to judge how a woman takes care of her health care, Right. And if your faith says that that judgment day will come, that is again, not for us to do, right. That is for that to happen at a different time. And we definitely have the freedom to say and to, and to follow what we want to follow. But when your own religion says that that is not for you to do, that is for me to do as the creator at another time, that's how it should go. You would not want somebody else's religion to be forced onto you as well of religion because you're, you know, you're supposed to be able to worship how you want, but you're not supposed to harm, hurt, or oppress others because of it. Let's talk a little bit more about your background, Tasha. Uh, you, your current job, your current profession is 
doing what and what does it look like on a daily basis? I work for a nonprofit social justice grassroots organizations out of Knoxville. And I am the donor engagement coordinator and the development coordinator at the moment. And what that looks like for me is I work with the, I work with the different organizations that we have as grantees. And I also work with the donors that we have to let them know, you know, why we're spending this money in central Appalachia, why social justice and social change is so important, how we dismantle oppression and deal with racism, sexism, ableism, you know, all the isms is by empowering the people of Central Appalachia by making sure that we are confronting that through the organizations at the grassroots level. So, you know, that's that's what we call boots on the ground. So the people that are working in the community, you know, mutual aid that can look like uh, collective art spaces that can look like um, bookstores. So that's what that's what I do on a daily basis is I bring in that money <laughs> and then we you know move that money um, to Central Appalachia and other organizations that are working on these things. Name a couple of the other projects from the Appalachian Fund. It's in Knoxville, you're living in Wise County, so I assume you work remotely, but what are, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but what are some of the projects that you're very proud of that the organization has done? Oh, yeah. So I uh, before I got this this particular um, donor engagement work, I was doing um, project management and we did a capacity building fellowship program. And what that I was very proud of that because we are trying to change the way that philanthropy works Mm -hmm. in that. I was able to not just grant money to organizations. I was able to grant money to individuals that were working on these social chains and social social justice issues. And I was able to craft the application in such a way that it was not 50 pages and you have to write, you know, a whole narrative. A lot of people could send in their artwork or they could send in a video. And we granted about $5,000 to 16 different individuals so that they can continue to do the work that they were doing. And I, and I also did not ask, you know, how, you know, exactly, how are you going to spend this money? How is this going to do this? It was more or less, show me the work you've already done. Show me that you are a mover and a shaker. Show me that you are a leader and an artist in your own right who works on social justice and social change. And you are now going to be able to use this funding in whichever way that you see fit to further your cause. And we also had fellowship around that. So I didn't just was able, we weren't just able to grant the money to these individuals. We then started convening. Of course, this was right when the pandemic hit. So we didn't get to be in person as much as I had liked. Um, But we definitely created a community. And a lot of us are still in touch after the fact. Um, Because of this project, there was a collective aid organization in Knoxville that was able to find a space. They, They needed a space. They were able to buy and and have their own home. And then we also had another organization that was looking for space as well. And because of the fellowship that that we have, they were able to find a space to do that as well. There were professional headshots that were taken for some of these people. And so it was really a a mixed bag of whatever we can do to build capacity. And that was, that, that was, it was so, it was so rewarding. 
How do you feel about these kinds of interviews? Is this something different for you that, you know, here I am talking to you, I got to know this, I got to know that, I got to ask all the questions. Has that been difficult for you or did it come as a surprise or were you used to that kind of thing for some reason? I would say I'm more used to, it was, it was, it was a little difficult as in learning a structure. Um, I'm, I was familiar with talking about my work. I'm familiar with talking about social justice and social change and movement. And I have always been involved uh, with politics, but I haven't, but I was not part of the system, right? Like I did not um, run for office before this. I did not participate, you know, in my committee as, you know, a regular member. So those, those things were, were new to me. Those were things I really had to figure out as I was doing this process. It's surprising because, because a lot of times, uh, I don't always have that knowledge, but I, you know, I, I have other knowledge. So that, that part has been, it has been interesting. Yeah. So people like me are asking for the good, bad, and the ugly. here's here's a transition Tasha Devon I'm sorry to do this but you know there's Mm -hmm. always a controversy and people want to know the dirt as far as I can see so far the dirt on you is that you got uh, caught after um, a party event while you were in college that's right so um almost 10 years ago um, I made a really bad mistake and I got in trouble for drinking and driving and I owned up to it. Um, I, you know, I pled guilty and I have not done it since. And I have been working, you know, to be a better person every day. And I will, you know, I will never not own up to that mistake. At the same time, I can point out the positive. You've impressed somebody along the way because you are a government appointee to a position. Tell us about that. Yes, so I was appointed to the Virginia Council on Environmental Justice um, under the North Administration and just recently have been elected chair as well for that council. It was because of my community work, my grassroots involvement, and the organizations that I had connections with put my name for Southwest Virginia that needed representation and somebody who knew how to work across different lines. And so the governor says, we tap Tasha Devon. How do people find out more about you? Re- remind us again about the website and how people find out more. Devonforcongress.com is my website. I'm also on Facebook under the same name and Instagram. And that's Devon, D-E capital V-A-U-G-H-A-N, Devon right. for Congress with four spelled out. Tasha Devon for Congress. Give us your elevator speech. Why should we vote for you in November, Tasha Devon? You should vote for me in November because voting for me is voting for someone who is just like you. And I am here to represent all of Southwest Virginia. I am a community led person. I want to hear and be with the people so that I know what voice I need to take to Washington in that way that we can build together for that better future. Because our family is what's important. It is our future is what we have to fight for. And we can do that in a way that doesn't divide us or separate us. There is unity in this district. And I feel that I am somebody who can do this job and I can bring that unity back. Tasha Devon, running for Congress, our guest here today on this conversation. You can find this program Wednesdays at six and Sundays at two. 
And you can also Google this conversation, WEHC, and find our podcast or find it on the website, wehcfm.com, if you missed part of this conversation and would like to go back and listen to it or listen to it again or find other interviews there, wehcfm.com. Thanks again, Tasha Devon. Thank you, Teresa. And thanks to the listeners, and please stay tuned. <laughs>